If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Job chapter 40. Here in the last section of the book of Job, there is a description of a, of a terrible, terrible beast. And one up a kind of terror in the heart. I remember many years ago, I was um, a seventh grader in uh, what was then called junior high school. We don't call it that anymore. But, you know, that, that's probably been 15 years ago at least. But anyway, I remember coming across a book, and I'd, I'd heard of the, the book, and so uh, I began to read it. And in the book, there was a description of a, of a terrible dog. Listen to the description. My mind was paralyzed by the dreadful shape which had sprung out upon, upon us from the shadows of the fog. A hound it was, an enormous, cold, black hound, but not such a hound as have mortal eyes ever seen. Fire burst from its open mouth. Its eyes glowed with a smoldering glare. Its muzzles and hackles and dewlap were outlined in flickering flame. Never in the delirious dream of a disordered brain could anything more savage, more appalling, more hellish be conceived than the dark form and savage face which broke upon us out of the wall of the fog. And in that way, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle describes the Hound of the Baskervilles and perhaps the most famous novel about uh, the detective Sherlock Holmes. He conjures up a vision of a dog with supernatural overtones that inspires terror in its victims and its readers. And as the hound breaks out of the fog upon them, it seems for a moment as if all the powers of hell have been unleashed. And to hear that description and to imagine yourself being there with that vicious creature coming at, at you out of the fog is to bring up a visceral fear within your heart. But it is not only fictional creatures that can inspire terror. In, in, in 2007, the crew of a New Zealand fishing boat hooked a Patagonian toothfish off the deep waters of Antarctica when they realized that something much bigger was trying to swallow it. Three hours later, they pulled up an enormous squid, one of the most frightening predators of the deep. This squid was 40 feet long. It weighed 1,000 pounds. Its uh, eyes were as big as dinner plates. One of the crewmen said that if you had made calamari from its rings, they would have been as big as tractor tires. Imagine coming upon something like that in the ocean. That's why I don't go in the ocean, by the way. But anyway, it's terrifying beyond belief. Uh, it is these kinds of visions that confront us as we hear the final words of the book of Job. And we think about not mythical creatures or even real creatures, but events, scenarios that... Uh, conjure up fear in our lives. Uh, an unexpected diagnosis of a terminal disease, perhaps, for us or for one that we love. How are we to think when violent crime robs us of peace and uh, safety 
or when our physical health uh, or some trauma physically leaves us paralyzed in some way. Uh, where do we run when the stability of the mind is overturned by the, the crippling uh, disorder of, of relationship, of a spouse, a parent, a child? What, what do you do if you learn that your child is a drug addict? Or what do you do if you learn that uh, a friend or a, a spouse or a neighbor uh, has perhaps committed some infidelity that brings uh, uh, heartache and, and despair to a relationship and fractures uh, a marriage. All of these things are full of dread. All of these things can be realities in our lives, much more than storybook monsters that only begin to convey the fear and the numbing terror that life itself can bring to us. So what are we to make of this last speech uh, that God gives to Job in the book of Job? First, I, I think it's important to note that this second speech addresses a different issue than the first. And it elicits a far different response from Job. The first speech focused on God's government of the world, his counsel. The second speech is concerned with his justice. And the first speech ends with Job being silenced and sobered. The second speech ends with Job affirming very, very strongly a truth about God. When the second speech is over, we're going to hear Job say, Whoa, man, was I ever wrong? I, I thought I knew about you, now I've seen you. Uh, and uh, the half has not been told. Uh, so Job is humbled. He's not just sobered as after the first speech, but rather he is humbled and he repents. He says to God, I have thought wrong thoughts about you and I've said wrong words about you, and I now repent. It's a radically deeper and stronger response. So if we put those two together, the different point at issue and the much deeper response, we are led to expect in some way that the second speech will do a lot more than just supplement the first with a little bit different kind of argument. Rather, in this second speech, there is a qualitative difference. In the first speech, God speaks of natural things from the natural world. Beasts and birds, things that are there. And it touches on the supernatural. But in this, in this second speech, we have super, supernatural agencies in vivid forms. Uh, God is speaking, I think, here about much more than the storybook creatures of uh, Behemoth and Leviathan. They represent something far worse. I think that's true because of the response of Job and some other things that I'll tell you. But God begins in this section by threatening Job, verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 and 7 are a repetition of verses 1 and 3 of chapter 38. But whereas at the very start of the, of the first speech the Lord gives, he accuses Job of darkening his counsel, here he makes a much different and much sharper accusation. In verse 8, 
He accuses Job of not just failing to understand God's wise ways of governing the universe, which was at issue in the first speech, but now he says that Job has dared to put God on trial. In other words, Job has decided he will condemn God to justify himself. And that's a far more serious accusation. Bildad had said back in chapter 8 that God does not pervert justice. But Job, in his suffering, has impugned the character of God. Not only has he said that God is not ruling the universe as wisely as he should by allowing Job to suffer, but now he says that God is not fair. God is not just. He has not done what is right. Uh, And so God taunts him in verses 9 through 14. Uh, Basically, God challenges Job to have a go himself at being the judge of all the world. Uh, There's an irony here. God begins with a reference to his arm and his thunder, which is his, his power and his voice, his powerful actions in judgment. Uh, his action in rescuing uh, the righteous and punishing the wicked. We're told a couple of times that God speaks with a voice of thunder and he reaches out his arm in order to deliver his children and to punish his enemies. Now God asks Job if he can do that. And it's, it's kind of a comical scene. Uh, it, it's as if, you know, in, in, in verse uh, 10... Uh, God says, here, here you go, Job. Uh, Here's my robes, here's my gavel, here's my podium by which I conduct the affairs of the universe and govern it. Here, put them on, see how they fit. See how you like this, Job. You think you can do this? It's like a a father mocking a small child who, who has gotten too big for his britches and thinks he can do things that he can't. God, in effect, is mocking and taunting Job and saying, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Do you really think that you can punish the wicked? Do you really, do you really know the place where wicked spirits are kept in eternal chains and gloomy darkness? You have become proud and lofty. You've lifted yourself up and think that I have not fairly governed the universe. Here, Job, have a go at it yourself. And if you can do that, if you can sovereignly rule, then I will sit down and admit that that you can save yourself and that you can rule the world. Job had no idea what he was talking about. A couple of thousand years later, we're going to see two men, James and John, who come to Jesus and say, we want to sit at your right hand and left hand. And Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh, yeah, no problem. They had no idea what the cup was. They had no idea what was involved. The cup was the wrath of God that Jesus Christ was going to drink for sinners. Jesus Christ was going to become sin. And all of the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him. He was going to baptize his soul in hell. And James and John had no clue about what was going on. 
None whatsoever. Job didn't either. And so God is taunting Job and mocking him. Uh, James and John did not know what was involved at the cross. They did not realize that the only way that death would be destroyed was by through death. Not just physical death, spiritual death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So now we come to uh, one of the most puzzling aspects of the last part of the book of Job. Who are Behemoth and Leviathan? And why are they here? And what in the world does all of this mean? And clearly, these two portraits are of great importance. God doesn't say anything else after he finishes giving the word picture of Leviathan. But immediately, Job repents. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So who are, or what are, these two creatures that as after God finishes describing them, Job immediately repents when he has just been kind of moving toward it before. Uh, God teaches Job in these verses of Scripture that there are forces in the world that are far beyond his power to control. And conversely, God teaches Job and us that there is nothing that is outside his control. That he is sovereign. You do understand that that is an absolute, do you not? Sovereign. You can't be almost sovereign. If you're almost, you're not sovereign. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he has all power. And that is the lesson that he is teaching Job in these word pictures. And the lesson that he is teaching us as well. In the history of the interpretation of Job, there have been a lot of approaches to identifying Behemoth and Leviathan. I mean, I, I myself have kind of, you know, been all over the map here, you know. Uh, someone asked me the other day, they were, they were talking about uh, preaching through Romans and said they'd kept careful notes, they were going to check on me from the last time I preached through it. You won't find much difference. Because in the book of Romans, we have salvation. We have things that I am dogmatic about. I'd go further, I'd say things that I'm bulldogmatic about. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And, you know, it's pretty settled in my mind. But there are other things in the Bible that, you know, I, honestly, there's some things in the Bible, people ask me, what do you believe about so-and-so? And I go, what time is it right now? You know, because I don't know, you know. I, I've, I believe that these two creatures were just two creatures. Probably a hippopotamus and a crocodile. One time, I was convinced, no, they had to be dinosaurs. Because I was very concerned about proving, you know, a, 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 a literal creation. So I thought, yeah, they're, they're prehistoric creatures because they no longer exist. Because they do not have the exact characteristics of a hippopotamus and a crocodile. 
They breathe fire, for instance. One of them does. Well, it's just, that's a dragon, isn't it? I mean, you know, dragons breathe fire. Come on, man, you know. I read Harry Potter. But anyway, uh, there are two main there are two main interpretations. One is that uh, they are actual creatures, like those you might find in a zoo today, like that Patagonian toothfish or that enormous squid that uh, the fisherman pulled up. So typically, behemoth has been understood to be a hippopotamus and leviathan a crocodile. The other main approach is to say that, no, these were mythical creatures uh, from the stories of the gods and the goddesses of the pagan world around Job. And they were well known in the ancient Near East. And they personify something else, that the writer, knowing that people would be familiar with them, used them as symbols to convey something far more terrible than an actual creature. It is not difficult to see how the descriptions have called to mind uh, the features of, of, of actual creatures. The behemoth is a powerful river, land animal, like the hippopotamus. Leviathan has terrifying rows of teeth, like the crocodile. And the techniques used for hunting them that uh, God describes here are they correspond to hunting techniques for hunting a hippopotamus or a crocodile. And moreover, there is evidence to suggest that in, that in Egyptian mythology, for instance, the hippopotamus and the crocodile were symbols of chaos needed to be subjugated, symbols of, of, of disorder and chaos in the world that had to be brought under control by forces that were stronger. But there are a number of difficulties, I think, with understanding these to be merely natural creatures. These difficulties, I think, add up to say, no, it's something far more. These are mythical creatures that the writer is using to convey a much greater truth. And the first difficulty is just what I've said. Neither description fits perfectly with any known creature on earth. Leviathan is described as a fire-breathing monster and an ocean-dwelling creature, neither of which is true of a crocodile. On its own, that's not an insurmountable objection because we would expect in a book that is 95% poetry that there would be some hyperbolic poetry in it, that there would be some exaggeration. But it is a problem because in the creatures that we have looked at in the, in the chapters just preceding this, there was no hyperbole. There were actual creatures that we can readily identify that, that God himself names. And a second difficulty, and I think far more important, is it, it's hard to see how Job's inability to catch and tame a hippo or a crocodile really addresses the question of his inability to administer cosmic justice. How could Job's inability to catch a crocodile have anything to do with his being able to govern the universe? The stakes are much, much higher than that. Because after we're all, in our world today, men do hunt hippos and kill them. 
they do hunt crocodiles and kill them. So if that were true, if they were actual creatures, then these words would hold no terror for us. They would not teach us anything about God's administering cosmic justice in the world. Uh, and, and tied in with that is the extraordinary response of Job at the end of the second speech. When God gets through describing these two creatures, Job just falls down and says, Oh Lord, forgive me. I have not seen who you are. I heard about it, now I've seen it. I know that you can do anything. And there is nothing beyond your power. Nothing beyond your power. Uh, I think there is clear evidence elsewhere in Scripture that Leviathan is a, a well-known storybook creature. In, Job, in the book of Job itself, in chapter 3, verse 8, Job said, Let those who curse it curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Uh, Isaiah mentions Leviathan. In Isaiah chapter 27, describing him as the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent, the dragon that is in the sea. And he's speaking in context of God's victory over it. In Psalm 74, Asaph speaks of the exodus in terms of God's breaking the head of the sea monsters and having crushed the heads of Leviathan, suggesting that Leviathan is a many-headed sea monster whose power and enmity to God are such that only the redemptive power of the Exodus can subdue it. But if we go to the book of Revelation, we get a far clearer picture. Uh, for the Revelation uh, takes the imagery of beasts and dragons and serpents and sea monsters and applies it explicitly to Satan himself. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation chapter 20, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. So we have clear scriptural evidence that Leviathan is a strange and terrifying sea monster, a many-headed breathing dragon who conveys to us the terror of Satan himself. Here we have the embodiment of cosmic evil. God, in effect, is saying to Job and to us, can you control Satan? Can you control the one who is the prince of the power of the air? Can you control the one who has the power of death? Here is evil embodied. If, if going back to, to Harry Potter, we might compare Satan to Voldemort. Um, so we're on strong, I think, strong biblical grounds when we say that uh, Leviathan is picturing Satan. God is asking Job, can you control Satan? Satan is at the beginning of the book. Now he appears again at the end in all of his evil terror. Now what about Behemoth? A uh, little less certain here, but I agree with the scholars who say that Behemoth portrays death. Death that Satan 
brings about. Uh, we depict death now uh, in imagery of like the, green, the grim reaper. You know, the, 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 the figure in the robe and the hood and a, and a scythe in his hand who comes and picks out his victims from among the living. I think that, I think that that is true because many, many places in Scripture, Satan is associated with death. Death and hell, Satan, go together. And all of that leads us to a very persuasive Christological climax to the book of Job. Behemoth seems to me to be the storybook embodiment of the figure of death. And Leviathan, that of Satan, the archenemy of God. Jesus calls him the God of this world. He is the one that holds the power of death. In Leviathan, we see the embodiment of beastliness, of terror, of undiluted evil. Uh, he is described in verse 34 as king over all the sons of pride. One that Jesus said was Beelzebub, the prince of demons. The second speech to Job is precisely addressing the problem of supernatural evil in the created order. I think that's clear in Job 48 through 14. Job has questioned God's justice. So God challenges Job to be the judge of all the earth, to bring low the proud and the wicked. If you can do that, God says, I'll admit it. Uh, the whole point here is, who can control Satan and death? Can you? No, only God can do that. Only God has the power to control Satan and death. Only God can keep Satan evil on a leash. Leviathan is the ruler of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. Here is a creature that is the ruler of all the proud. Job, if you can tame him, you can tame all the proud, but you can't, Job. But God says... I can't. You see, this awesome creature is a creature. God made him. Luther often described Satan as God's Satan. By that he meant that he was not equal with God. That there are not two opposing forces in the world that are equal. God and Satan. No, no, no. Satan is God's Satan. He is a creature. He was created. God made him. God controls him. And he only goes as far as God says. And he can go no further. He is on a leash. Think of entering a, uh, a farmyard. And there are five huge snarling dogs in the yard and they are threatening to take you down and tear your throat out and you're thinking is there someone around who controls these dogs I mean is there someone are they kept on a leash can someone step up and say down and they'll stop Job has suffered greatly 
more than any man ever suffered except for Jesus Christ. And his deepest fear is that the monster who has attacked him is unrestrained. That there's no one that has the power to put an end to all of his suffering. That there is a free hand, unlimited evil may be unleashed upon him. He is afraid that there is no sovereign God that has evil on a leash. And God says, no, no, no. This is my Satan. Evil I control. Uh, and Job grasps that. And when he does, he is filled with awe. Leviathan is a horrible monster. Satan is a horrible monster. But he cannot go one millimeter beyond the leash that God has him on. That obviously doesn't answer all of our questions. doesn't answer all of Job's. Why does, why does God allow him to have the, the reign that he has? Well, I don't know. You see, you'd, you'd have to be God to know that. It is enough for me that I know that God is sovereign. That evil is on his leash. That Satan is his Satan. That death and Satan ultimately are under God's control. And that God has no rival. That there is none who can even come close to being his rival. That means that as we suffer, as we sit with others who suffer, we may have absolute confidence and bow down to this sovereign God, knowing that while evil may be terrible, it cannot and will not go one millimeter beyond the leash that God has it on. And it will not go on forever. For the one that we belong to is God, sovereign. I told someone the other day, as I watched my father and my brother and my sister die of cancer and the horrible suffering they went through, and I thought, oh, dear God, stop it. Just stop it. Let him, let him go on. Because I knew that a sovereign God could deliver them from suffering and from death because he has overcome death. And it's not until the New Testament that we learn what it costs God to win this victory over Leviathan and over Behemoth. It takes the imposition of a greater force not of the same kind. Evil cannot be defeated by evil. Evil and death were not defeated by some evil tyrannical ruler who forced them out. On the contrary, this victory over death and Satan was won at the cross of Jesus Christ. As the writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ has through death destroyed them that had the power of death. The reason that Leviathan has a hold over human beings is that we have surrendered to his cruel sovereignty by rebelling against God. The sting of death 
is sin. Men die because of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Sin means that men are separated from God. God is life. That means they're separated from life. Sin separates us. The wages of sin is death. That is a debt that has to be paid. If we are to escape the wrath of God, then someone has to pay for the wages of sin. We owe this dark monster our allegiance. We cannot escape the clutches of Satan and death until the debt is paid. No one, no one can enter into glory. No one can escape suffering and pain unless the debt is paid. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Now indeed I find thy power in thine alone can change the leprous spots and melt this heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's land. And listen to this. Listen. And when before the throne I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you believe that he paid the debt of sin that you owe? If you will do that, then you can escape the clutches of death and of Satan with the debt fully paid and stand before the throne of God dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're going to stand and sing that hymn.